In the Ephesian church, they had high spiritual standards. They screened out the bugs that the light attracted, and we need to do that. And so in essence, when someone came in, they said, before you teach, we need to find out some things about you. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the Revelation, we began a look yesterday at the seven churches that are introduced at the end of chapter 1 and which are fully addressed in chapters 2 and 3. As we pick up today, Pastor Brogy will quickly look at the pattern of the admonition given by Jesus Christ to each of these churches, and then he'll move into chapter 2 and begin a look at the church at Ephesus in part 2 of our message entitled, When Your Love is Gone. Now, there's a pattern, and let me just remind you of the pattern. Each of the seven letters ends with the same admonition. Everyone has an ear, listen to what he says to the churches. And each of the seven churches begins with a character trait of Jesus. And we will see that. And the character traits that we will find in the seven churches, with the exception of one, come right out of chapter one. Why don't you go this week, go back, and see if you can match up the character traits of Jesus in the seven churches and where they come from in chapter one, and come back and tell me which church doesn't have a character trait, and tell me why. Mm, There's an exercise for you. Now, he describes each church by beginning with himself, because each church needs to keep their eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith. And then after he gives a character trait with all seven churches, he gives an evaluation, though the evaluations are different. With two of the churches, number five and seven, Sardis and Laodicea, he says nothing good about those churches. He doesn't start by saying, well, let me tell you all the good things. He goes right to the rebuke after he describes himself. With two of the churches, number two and number six, Smyrna and Philadelphia, he says nothing bad about them. And so most churches say, oh, we're like Smyrna or we're like Philadelphia. Well, I hope we are. He just goes right to the good. But with the other churches, one, three, and six, he first describes himself. He then says what they're doing well, and then he says what they are doing wrong, and he ends each letter in the same way. Now, if you move to a new community, and many, especially our Marines and Navy personnel, do that quite often. You know how frustrating it can be sometimes to find a healthy church. And so what do you look for? There's a lot of churches that are dying, many that are dead. The Wall Street Journal projects 50,000 churches in America will close in the next 10 years. I preached a funeral yesterday at a little precious church, had a great history. One of the dear saints there basically told me we're clinging on for life. Just trying to keep the doors open. A lot of churches like that in America. And then there are some churches that have big congregations. But Jesus doesn't think much of them. I mean, think about it. Think about the church at Laodicea. They thought they were rich. Jesus said they were poor. Or think about the church at Smyrna. They thought they were poor. Jesus said they were rich. And so what we think is not nearly as important as what the Lord Jesus thinks about the church. And that's rather humbling because it causes us to reflect and to carefully say, Lord Jesus, what say you of this church? 
And so as we go through this book, remember a church, this church, is the sum total of its individuals. Now that's by way of background. Let's dig into the letter. I want to begin this morning with how Jesus examines their reputation. He begins by examining the reputation of the church in Ephesus. We read now in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now we need to begin by asking a question. Who is this angel of the church? Basically, two views are held, and a lot of the confusion is really more rooted, I think, in the English Bible than in other language translations. One view says that the angels are literal angels or guardian angels who are over various congregations. Of course, the major problem with that view is first, how would an angel come to the church and deliver the message? And why would an angel come and deliver a message and preach a message to a church? In fact, the New Testament never, ever, ever shows an angel coming to a local church to preach a message. It does teach the angels come to a local church to watch the saints. I hope you realize it. Paul teaches it in his letter to the Corinthians that there's more of us here than you see with the visible eye. That when the church gathers for worship, there are angels in our presence watching and learning from the body of Christ. And the thought that there are guardian angels for a church, there may be, but there's no textual scriptural evidence anywhere in the Word of God that would teach that. And it seems rather convoluted that an angel is going to come to a church in Ephesus and give them a message. Second, People take these angels not to be literal angels in these seven churches, but human messengers, pastors. You say, are, is there any precedent for calling an angelos, an angel, a human? Yes, there is in both Hebrew and in Greek. The word for angel in Greek is angelos. In Hebrew, it is malach. And both the Hebrew and the Greek word can be used to describe a literal angel or a human messenger. Now, I say the problem is largely a problem of the English Bible because in most other languages of the world, when even a human is clearly in view, they just translate it Moloch angel or Angelos angel. And they leave it up to the reader to figure out what is in view. And so, people don't always think. Now, let me give you some examples in the Scripture where you have a word that can have a technical, formal meaning in one context and an entirely different meaning in another context. Jesus, for instance, in Mark 10, when His disciples are having a little battle over who's the greatest in the kingdom, He said, it is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you must be your Diaconus, your deacon, many languages of the world say. Your servant. Many languages don't even translate the word. They just write, they transliterate the word. When you transliterate the word, you take the sounds and you put it right into their language. Let him be the deacon of all. Now, is he speaking of a literal deacon or just someone who's a servant? A servant, and so our English Bibles translate it that way. We know it's different from the usage of the same word, say in 1 Timothy 3.8. Deacons, diakonoi, plural, likewise, must be men of dignity. And so he gives the qualifications for a deacon, implying not everyone can meet those qualifications, yet everyone can be a deacon in the sense they can be a servant. Not everyone can be a deacon in the sense that they serve in the office of deacon. 
Again, most languages of the world just leave it untranslated and they leave it for you to figure out. Let me give you another example. Romans 1 and verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, an apostolos, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul is reminding the recipients of this letter in the city of Rome that he is writing as God's slave and as God's apostle. He is coming with the authority of Jesus Christ. And yet, when you read Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, the second chapter, the 25th verse, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is your apostolos. We translate it messenger, but in most languages of the world, it just says he's your apostle. You say, wait a minute. Epaphroditus was not one of the 15 apostles mentioned in the New Testament because to be an apostle, you had to have been hand-selected by Christ. And if you were one, you would have the signs, wonders, and miracles that would confirm that you were selected by him. So in what sense is he an apostolos, an apostle? The word apostle means sent one, like the word deacon means a servant. He's a sent one. He's sent to the churches. Last week, we sent some of the pastors here to the church there in Graniteville. They are sent ones. They are coming to help, and, and they are called alongside to serve the saints that are there. Now, again, in most languages of the world, it's not translated, you figure it out. So it is with the word angel. The problem is, is that in the English Bible, they're not consistent. Sometimes they translate the word, sometimes they don't. And so what does the word angel here mean? And does the word angel ever refer to someone who's not a literal angel? Yes, it does. The word angelos means a messenger. In Hebrew, it is malach. So think about it. You remember Daniel 6? Daniel said to Darius, God sent his malach, his angel, to shut the mouths of the lions. And so God protected him that night. And yet the prophet Haggai in chapter 1 and verse 13 is called God's angel, God's messenger. The forerunner of the Lord in the book of Malachi is God's malach, God's messenger. In the New Testament, Luke chapter 1, now in the sixth month, the angel, the angelos, Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. This is a literal angel. This is not some human. Yet, in Luke chapter 7, verse 24, John's disciples are like, the, like John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Lord, is called an angel. When the angelos, the angeloi, it's plural, when the angels, when the messengers of John had left. So, obviously, in every instance, an angel is not a literal angel, and you have to figure that out. Now, some 20 years ago, when we first saw, we had actually been involved for a couple years at that point with a church in Leeton, Ukraine, some of the dear sisters cross-stitched me a beautiful piece of artwork, and they wrote, to the angel of the Carl, to the angel Carl at the church in Beaufort. Now, did they think I was a literal angel? No. In fact, I think the Ukrainian Bible translates it angel uh, when they come to those words for messenger rather than put it in uh, as messenger. 
they, they, they were saying, I'm God's messenger. I'm an angel. Hey, I'm an angel. You can call me Angel Carl if you want. That's what God says. I'm God's messenger, as every pastor is. Now, this is interesting because he speaks to the angel singular, not to the angels. And some are kind of surprised by that. Now, some conclude for a single elder form of government. So, in some independent churches in the world, there is not a plurality of pastors. There's one pastor. And they would argue for a singular pastor from Christ's seven letters here in the Revelation. Or then some would argue, no, he's talking about the super pastor within the city. And they create a hierarchy. There's the pastor, and then there's the bishop who's over all the pastors. Well, interestingly, in Acts and in Paul's letters, the word bishop and pastor and elder is used interchangeably, sometimes within the sentence to refer to the same person or groups of persons. So that doesn't make any sense. The whole idea of this hierarchy developing is not really a biblical principle. And so God has his angels. Now, if I were to ask you, uh, if someone said to you, hey, who's the pastor of Community Bible Church? You'd probably say, well, Pastor Carl Brogy. Well, I am the angel, the pastor, in the sense that I am, to use modern terminology, the senior pastor, but I'm not the only pastor. There's a plurality of pastors here. If any among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Not the elders of the churches, not the elder of the church, but the elders, plural, of the church, singular. And yet, clearly in the New Testament, while elders are equal, there's a leader amongst equals. If I asked you who the pastor is at First Baptist Church Atlanta, you'd say Charles Stanley. And yet, he has over 20 pastors on the staff. So, he is addressing what we would today call the senior pastor, to the angel, the senior pastor of the church in Ephesus, right? Now, if you've ever been to Ephesus, it's a magnificent city in terms of its ruins. Here's the uh, auditorium that Paul wanted to get into. Remember, he went in there to preach the gospel, and the city was so radically changed that the sales had plummeted in the city of Ephesus. And the silversmiths were all upset because people weren't buying their trinkets like they were. And they had this rally there in this Colosseum that's full. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Remember that? It's an incredible scene to read of there in the Acts of the Apostles. And we stood here a few years ago. Some of you are with me. This was marvelously preserved, covered in sand for centuries. Here's another picture of Ephesus. This was the facade of the front of the library where some 200,000 volumes once were housed, ever before there was a printing press. And here's the promenade. Don't think of this as some small little dusty town when you think of Ephesus. Ephesus was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. It would be comparable to Orlando, Florida. There was a quarter of a million people who lived in this place. It's not some dirty little dusty street with camels running down. It's a very large commercial cosmopolitan town. It's the fourth largest city in the world when this letter is written. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. 
Now, each of the seven letters, again, begins with a personal designation of the Lord Jesus, and the one that he selects for every church is critically important in light of the health of that church. And we will see that as we work through these seven churches. In Revelation 1 in verse 12, and then again in verse 16, and then the interpretation in verse 20, Jesus is described as holding in his hands the seven stars which are the seven angels or the seven pastors. And certainly this local church and the city of Ephesus had some choice leaders. Apostle Paul planted this church. He was there for three years. He was followed by Timothy. The apostle John, who writes the Revelation, pastored this church at one time himself. And he holds the seven stars, the seven angels, the seven pastors in his hands. And I thank God that he does. And because he holds us in his hands, sometimes he brings a pastor to a church, and sometimes he moves a pastor from a church. But I thank God that he not only holds the seven pastors, he holds the seven churches, and he walks among us, and with his nail-scarred hands, he's caring for his people. It's a picture of his ownership. It's a picture of his presence, of his care, and of his control. And so what he does now is he affirms them for four strengths that are true of them. Number one, they were a diligent church. Point A there on your outline. They were a diligent church. He begins, I know your deeds. And how gracious to start with a word of commendation. This church was not dead. They were diligent in serving the Lord. They were busy doing deeds, or some of your translations say works. No doubt their week was full of activities. They met for fellowship, for prayer meetings, for outreach. You know, I like to read sometimes church marquees, and one caught my attention. Some of them are really good. Some of them are really bad. But this one, it said, a going church for a coming Lord. I'd like that. A going church for a coming Lord. That's the church at Ephesus. They were a going church. They were diligent. They weren't lazy. God doesn't bless laziness. God blesses diligence. And they were busy doing good works for Jesus. By the way, Ephesians is one of the books in the New Testament that has some of the great work verses in it. Most of you have Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 memorized. If you don't, you should. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself. Salvation is not something you pull off. It is the gift of God. Gifts are not earned. They are humbly received. The free gift of God is eternal life. If you're trying to earn your way to heaven today and you die doing that, you'll go to hell. That's what the Bible teaches. You have to receive the gift of God that is not as a result of works. It's not a reward for anything you do. Therefore, no one can boast or brag. Now, sometimes we preach so much about the grace of God that we think that good works really don't matter, but they do. The next verse says, for we are his workmanship, poema. We are his poetry. We are God's poetry created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by works, but we're saved to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, God has a plan for your life. There's a set of works 
that God prepared for you to walk in. Certainly there's some general works that apply to us all, but God has a specific plan as it relates to your life. And if you walk closely with him, you'll walk in those works. So works are not the root of salvation. They're the fruit. They're not the cause, but they're definitely the consequence, the result of someone who is saved. And so Jesus looked at this church and the first thing he says is, I know your deeds. Faith without works is dead. Jesus, the Bible says in Acts 10, went about doing good. And in the Sermon on the Mount, I've already quoted it, let your light shine before men in such a way that they might see your good works and bring glory to your Father who is in heaven. So here was a serving, loving, reaching, witnessing church for Jesus Christ. I know your deeds. They were diligent. Secondly, I want you to see they were a dedicated church, a dedicated church. We read now in verse 2, I know your deeds and your toil. Now, there's different words for toil or work in the New Testament, and Jesus selected the word kopos. It's a word for work that doesn't mean just to labor, but to work to the point of exhaustion. These were Christians who are willing to pay a price to serve the Lord. Not only were they working, they were working hard. Jesus said, I know all about your blood, sweat, and tears. They certainly were not like the fellow who said, now I lay me down to sleep. The sermon is long. The subject is deep. If he should quit before I wake, give me a nudge for goodness sake, all right? (laughs) Hey, look, there's a lot of churches in America that are, spiritually speaking, sound asleep. Not this church. This was not a group of people who were straddling the pews. These were people who didn't come to sit, soak, and sour. These were people who loved the living God and were working. You knew what they were about in the church. If, some of, if all the members were like some of you, we would have no church this morning. Because some of you have never served anywhere and you have no intention of ever serving anywhere. That's sad. Not the church at Ephesus. Notice the second description I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. If you have the NASB, it brings you out into the margin and it translates the Greek as steadfast. In other words, this was a steadfast church. This was a dedicated church. Hupamone is the Greek. It speaks of endurance or perseverance in the midst of difficulty. And so the English standard renders it with two words, Patience enduring. When the going gets tough, the tough gets going. That's where these people. Jesus says, I know what you're facing. I understand that you are working to the point of perspiration. And not only you are working to the point of perspiration, you are persevering. You're not quitting. You're hanging in there week after week and year after year. They had been doing this now for over 40 years since Paul started this church. Jesus saw their deeds and their toil and their perseverance. And because they were a a diligent church and a determined church, he then goes on and he affirms them that they are a disciplined church. They're a disciplined church. Follow closely now, verse 2. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test Those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, 
and you found them to be false. So the Ephesian church was a disciplined church. Number one, they did not tolerate evil men. For those who would pollute the Word of God, for those who would dilute the Word of God, they said, no way, we are not going to let you be a part of this church. Now on the one hand, the Bible is very clear that a local church should help the weak. But on the other hand, the Bible is very clear that we are not to tolerate those who bring falsehood into the church. The whole concept of biblical separation is virtually gone in modern-day evangelicalism. And if you take a stance and you say, I won't fellowship with that church because of such and such, you are labeled as unloving, unkind, evil, and on and on and on they'll go. And so there were some apostles, not apostles meaning one of the twelve, say, or the fifteen, but there were sent ones like Epaphroditus, and there would be people who would be sent to different local churches to come alongside and to help them out. Greg and, I mean, Jeff and Brad are in the Bluffton Hilton Head campus there as sent ones from this fellowship, helping the fellowship of believers that are there this morning, coming alongside. And so there were people, just like last week, we sent some to Grandiville who would come alongside. But when they showed up at Ephesus, these who came saying, look, I'm a, a representative, I've been sent here. They put them to the test. They made sure that they were legitimate. Now, Jesus warned in the Sermon on the Mount that there would be men who would come like wolves in sheep's clothing. Paul, when he met with the Ephesian pastors, and it was plural, for the last time in Acts chapter 20 on that beach, he said, I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, not only will they come from the outside, some will infiltrate from the inside. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. And the Apostle Paul would have been thrilled to have heard Jesus' commendation. For 40 years you did what I said. Now we must never forget that just as God has His real pastors, the devil has his pastors. And these people are to be detected and rejected. I read just recently of Chaplain Gavin Ashton. He's the chaplain to the Queen in Scotland. And he recently resigned from the Church of Scotland. Because on Epiphany Sunday, some churches are more liturgical and they have certain Sundays by certain names. Nothing wrong with that necessarily. And so you have Christmas, and usually the week after you have Epiphany Sunday, where you have the appearing of the wise men, and they celebrate that. So on Epiphany Sunday, the churches in Scotland were asked not to read Matthew 2 of the wise men that affirm the deity of the Lord Jesus, but they were instead to read as a bridge-building exercise, Surah 19 from the Quran that denies Christ's deity. In the Ephesian church, they had high spiritual standards. They screened out the bugs that the light attracted, and we need to do that. And so in essence, when someone came in, they said, before you teach, we need to find out some things about you. We need to make sure that you are squared away Christian, that you know what you're about. Love for Christ in a church is displayed through obedience to what God has clearly stated. 
What kind of love is it when people are allowed to sin without reproof, all in the name of not being judgmental? There's little difference in that and in children being allowed to play in traffic because one doesn't want to stifle their fun. And the church at Ephesus had begun to allow heretics to come in and plant untruths in the midst of the congregation, thus leading Jesus to declare that they had lost their first love. To listen again to today's study, part one of When Your Love is Gone, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV4. Tomorrow we conclude our look at When Your Love is Gone. Join us then as we search the scriptures.